Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number 41. This week's guest is Dr. Pam Staples. She is a friend and an amazing therapist. Her bio lists her as having received a master's and a doctorate in the field of psychology. For her entire 40-year career, she chose to work with a very special population, a group that I see all the time, teenagers. Working with teens has been so incredibly rewarding for Dr. Pam. She could see the innate opportunities to help change the trajectory of a teenager's life, which are so potent during the delicate developmental stage that they're in. She describes herself as a temporary third parent when working with teens alongside their parents. Dr. Pam shared many of the tools in her wide-ranging toolkit with her beloved teen clients, and as a result, many of them are flourishing as adults today and seek out Dr. Pam to share their stories to this day. In today's conversation, we get into the discussion around raising teenagers and what are some of the important thought processes around how do we present ourselves as adults to the teenager? What kind of voice do we use? How do we expect boundaries to be set? What are the expectations around how our children are supposed to act in modern society? How are screens involved? I mean, there are so many things that are new to the parents of this world compared to years past. I mean, every generation probably says this, where, you know, our parents were frustrated with the type of music we had or the way we showed up at school, church, whatever it was, because we didn't dress the same, we weren't as respectful. I know that's been said for generations, but it seems different now. The media seems dramatically different. The problems seem more exploded because of the way we're dealing with things. I mean, we know that anxiety and depression are on the rise. Suicide is on the rise. Many of these, the teenagers' disease points are worsening. And it seems to me that we're living in a world where we're not paying enough attention to the possible upstream risks of this. We're not looking at getting school start times later for teenagers so they can get more sleep. We're not looking at making sure they're fed nourishing food in school. We're not looking at some of the most basic targets. But that being said, that's not part of this conversation. This conversation is about what we as parents can do to raise healthy teenagers in a relational way. And for that, I can't think of a better person to talk to than Dr. Pam Staples. She has spent her career and her life looking into this space and how to deal with it effectively and has dealt with many, 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 many teenagers. And as stated, many of them have come back to her in their mid-30s, 40s, and 50s to say, hey, thank you so much for all you've done for me because I turned out okay. And frankly, that's all we care about is our kids going to turn out okay. And so with that, let's get busy talking to Dr. Pam Staples. Well, good day, Pam Staples from Minnesota. I am so happy to have you on the show. It is uh, a great pleasure. I know you're sitting there in the lovely cold weather in your house with a nice snowstorm outside. So welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I've been waiting to have this conversation for a while. And I'm so excited because I am, it, you know, the discussion around teenagers is something that's close and near and dear to my heart, having a 19 and now 17 year old. And the trials and tribulations of my own existence of trying to parent effectively, which probably fall on my sword a hundred times in the last two weeks alone. Um, <laughs> so I want to start with this. So Billy Graham wrote a, a statement where he said, the family should be a closely knit group. The home should be a self-contained shelter of security 
a kind of school where life's basic lessons are taught. And I really love that. I think about teenagers as a group that needs us as parents to help them learn to deal with the pro- learn to deal with and process the obstacles in their lives, the feelings that get muddy or in the way. They're learning to problem solve and cope along the journey of life, leading in them into being effective, uh, solvent, emotional adults, right? And so these lessons, tools, and realizations can make or break their road to emotional success. And you know, I, I remember, you know, that that they're supposed to and will make a lot of mistakes. I know I made a boatload of mistakes. And being the third child, I probably got away with way too many of my mistakes, right? And that probably led to a lot of issues that I've had to deal with in my own existence in 52 years. So we need to be there for them. But I think the greatest gift that we can ever give a child is unconditional love. And, and I've learned from you that I think the second greatest gift is to give them boundaries, effective boundaries, and then so they can put up effective boundaries. So let's start there. So, you know, what do you think about the world of, as a therapist, taking care of teenagers? Actually, before that, Pam, tell us your story a little bit, like how you became to be the great therapist that you are um well I, I um well you didn't mention but i do have a degree in psychology a, a right. doctoral degree in psychology and i've been in practice for almost 40 years and um i was kind of called to work with teenagers i think because i have a teenager in me that could relate to the teenagers i worked with and um so this is an interesting thing that just happened. So I graduated from my master's degree program in about 1984, and I started working at this clinic. And I saw this teenage girl, and I really liked this teenage girl. And she actually was an inspiration for me to want to continue working with adolescents. It's 1986. She just emailed me. She's been trying to find me and she found me on my website. And she just wrote me an email like two days ago saying, no I've been way. trying to find you. And I, and she goes, Serka 1986 is when we met. And I wrote back to her and I go, oh my God. Um, I said, you and I definitely have to figure out how to connect. I said, you are one of my inspirations to work with adolescents my entire career. So how beautiful. I beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, love that. so that's just I, that's just like like I had to share that because it's so magical. Oh, yeah. Um but I um I just I got this kind of like intuition that I should work in an inpatient setting with adolescents and I was hell-bent on getting this one job as a family therapist on an adolescent psych unit. And I wow. did get that job. And I was in it for five years while I went and got my doctoral degree. And I got to be a family therapist for these kids to help. So it was systemic. It was a systemic approach. So yeah. um, it was my absolute favorite job. And I worked with all these wonderful people. And it it, it was, it's to this day, it's just... I have many fond memories of doing group therapy and family therapy with these kids and helping them get better from A to Z because they got to stay for six weeks and now they right. stay for three days. Yeah. Right. And not only that, but these are the kids that are in most situations in the worst 
emotional traumatic state. Yeah, so you're yeah. dealing with kids who need the most help, which of course now, you know, it's like three days or they're frankly in the ER for five days because there's no inpatient beds anywhere. So the effectiveness is just pathetic right now. Yeah. So I, I got to work in that era of um, pre-managed care. And so it was a beautiful thing to see these kids be able to walk out and be so much better. Do you have an example of sort of like a story from that time I so you'd like many. to share? Pick um, one. Well, I remember this one girl. Um, she was so... Wait, let me think. Let me think. I have so many examples. Um, no, I'll share the one I was thinking about. Um, a, a young woman, she was probably... 1617 admitted to the hospital for some bipolar symptoms. Um, she decided to, this was a locked unit. She broke out of the unit. Don't ask me how she did it. Um, and she went to California. Don't ask me how she got there. <laughs> and, and she ended up coming back and I had to um, work with her family and the family really wanted her to be bipolar because that helped them put her in a box and a label where they could just have her be the sick kid. And oh. so what I did is I challenged that family that, and I challenged actually the psychiatrist too. I don't think she's bipolar. I think she's an adolescent exploring the world and doing some other things. And right. so I, I kind of went against the grain of the psychiatrist and the family. And I really advocated for her. And, um, and she actually did get the diagnosis lifted. And, and people saw her with much more milder things. But I actually, she came to see me a few years later, after she was an adult, like in her early 20s. And she thanked me for helping her um, get out of that situation. So, so that's a situation where she wasn't served well by her family or the system. And I helped her escape from that. As much, so her escape was really, a, I'm trying to escape yeah. the label. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to you. Turned out to be a great, wonderful young woman without the, being saddled with a terrible diagnosis that didn't fit her. Do you think that happens a lot? I think it happens a lot more now yeah. because these um, short-term hospital stays don't allow for a good diagnosis. Right. Um, they don't allow for good evaluations. And so I think there's a lot of quick guesswork being done. And I'm, and I think too many kids end up with too many diagnoses and and too many medications now too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, think I recently I recently medicated. Yeah, I recently saw a young man who just turned eighteen, and I've been carrying him for many many years. And his caregiver had to bring him over and over again. It was his grandmother, and he recently let me know because he was there with a different person. I was like, oh, this is interesting because I'd never seen him with anyone else. And the caregiver had recently become ill and I was sitting there talking to him and he'd been diagnosed with mood disruptive disorder, all kinds of different things, medicalized, medicated. And most of the time I saw him as a wonderfully beautiful kid struggling. And he 
comes into the office with this other person. I'm like, oh, what's going on? You know, this is very interesting. And we've always had a very open relationship. He's like, well, um, I'm just, this is my mom. And I'm like, oh, wow, your mom. And yeah. and the mom's sitting there and the mom's like, yeah, you know, I'm, 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 well, you should, the person who's caring for him was ill. And, and he was like, yeah. And then it came out that that person had been very hard on him, made his life very difficult. Yet that was the person who appeared to be the most loving and caring in his life. And he, at that point, was sort of sitting there going, I feel much better now. And it was a really weird dynamic. And in the whole thing, I looked at him and I'm like, so do you have any of this anxiety? And no, it feels great. I'm like, whoa. Right. And so I think oftentimes the situation is becoming the problem that's unlooked at. Right. 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 So let's start talking about it from that perspective. So as parents, right, because I really want to hone in on what can parents learn from the expert that is Pam Staples about how we can be in relationship with our kids that helps them to be emotionally stable. So when you approach a parent in any kind of situation, and again, use examples as you see fit, what do you think we should be telling parents in general about how to raise our teenagers? Because they need to explore and be mistake makers. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been in the field long enough to see a shift from um, too little parenting of kids. Oh, yeah. Who were raised in the you know 70s 80s and, and 90s where they were just kind of left to their own devices and you know ran their own shows and then the, the then there's a shift to the um kind of the helicopter parenting and um so so i'm going to talk about more of the helicopter parenting approach so what's happened is the shift was from marriage-centered families to child-centered families. The shift was kids matter, whereas they used to not matter. Child protection laws came in uh, in the 70s. Kids became consumers, um, so that, that elevated their um, status in the world. So there were all these kind of cultural forces that um, shifted um, to this child-centered family um, system where parents devote all their resources to their kids. Um, and, and another uh, factor that goes into that is a fear factor is that the world got scarier with 9-11, school shootings, et cetera, et cetera. So, th so there's a fear factor that drives all this too. And I have great compassion about that. Um, but the, the kids that I... Um, have worked with want to they want their space they want their freedom and they want room to figure out their own problems and their own solutions and I think that um, parents who devote so much of their energy to their kids are not doing right by their kids because I think their kids Kids should be given more space to become who they're supposed to become. And when they're under constant watch, they can't do that. Um, so I, I do have a, a pet peeve about that. Well, it's interesting. I had a parent come in and I go, 
I said, so is this a helicopter parent situation? She goes, oh, no, I like, I like this mom. She goes, oh, hell no. She goes, I'm hovercraft. <laughs> Honestly. I, I, I love that line. It's like hovercraft. <laughs> and I go, and how's that working for you? <laughs> What'd she say? <laughs> she goes, well, I like it, but my daughter doesn't. And I go, yeah, I kind of figured that. So then we, so what we, that's where the boundaries come in is negotiating the boundaries between a parent and a teenager of how much space should you give them? So I think about like a boundary as a perimeter and that perimeter when they're young is a small perimeter. And then with, you know, each year of age, that perimeter should expand and expand and keep expanding. And so many parents are so fearful of giving their kids that extra space to experiment. Um, so I say let, let they need to learn how to fail. They need to learn about natural consequences if they make bad choices. Um, this is how they learn. They learn from their mistakes. Let them make some. So um, there's too much emphasis, I think, on high achievement, um, grades, getting into co good colleges, um, playing sports. And these kids, in addition to being um, kind of looked after all the time, they're also, they lead what I consider too organized of a life where there's no unstructured time and time to play. So these kids who are going to sports every night and practice and all year long, it, I think it's too much. And I think they should just learn how to play naturally and with imagination. Because I think kids are losing their ability to imagine um, things because everything's in either social media, a video format, or um, it's structured, organized um, sports. Schools are structured and organized for their future. ACT prep classes. I mean, these kids don't seem to get a break from their organized kind of assembly line life. So I have a, I have, I have a lot to say about that, obviously. <laughs> so yeah, and, I, and I think to your point, that's driven by fear. Because cool. if your kid's not doing that, they're left behind. It's sort of like Elon Musk making this Neuralink. You know, if Neuralink does come to pass, if you don't hook up to Neuralink, you're done. Mm -hmm. You don't have the real-time computer in your brain, so that person's going to bypass the six steroids. It's, it's almost like, how do we unwind this? Right. And I, that's a tough answer. I agree with you entirely that all of that is true. But what would you say to unwind it? Um, I, I think that parents are going to have to take some risks and dare to be different and dare to go against the grain and support each other in, in doing that. So I'm starting to see some parents go, you know what? I don't want my kid to organize sports all year long. I want them to be in one sport so they learn how to, uh, you know, be accountable to a team and all the skills that go with being in a sport. I'm not against kids being in sports. Um, I think it can teach you a lot. But I just think that we've gone a little overboard. Um, you know, parents even go to their kids' practices. They go to every game. Who made up that rule? Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just... You just look at how people are spending their time and their energy just over the top. So I think that um, parents are going to have to uh, 
resist the 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 urge to conform and the urge to compete because I think there's a competitive nature also in this. So I think it's driven by fear and competition. Our kids have to be the best, do the best, go to the best place. And this whole best, best, best thing isn't working. Um, in fact, I just read a book um, written by somebody, I can't think of his name, but he's from the Brookings Institute. And he wrote a book called Of Boys and Men. Richard Reeves. Yes, that's it. And he talks about how boys are falling behind in school right. um, more and more and how they that lag in, in school creates a lag in their life. And so I think we just have to look at um, what will serve these kids um, over the long haul. And, um, and so I think we have to be more moderate in our approach to letting kids be kids instead of having them be automatons and robotic academics and achievers and all that. Because I think it's us. Yeah, and I, 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 that resonates with me, Pam, because I think, especially because it's getting younger and younger, and these kids haven't even had a chance to develop identity, and they're being thrust into this world. Now, it's one thing if a four-year-old shows unbelievable desire to play the piano and they are not asking the parent, they are demanding of the parent yes. to play. Fine, yes. let that kid go. But the top-down approach, like you need to be on your piano two hours a day all the time, and then you go to soccer practice, then you have your homework and you're up to 11, you're up at six, so you're not getting enough sleep, so you're exhausted during the day. You're not, this merry-go-round of the family yep. circus of craziness has yep. to come to an end, right? And, you know, I think that even that was what that one book was written about the Chinese dragon mom. I can't remember what it was called, where where she was talking about how, you know, the Chinese mom is all over getting that child into this, this, that, and the other. And it was almost like it was glorified that that's a good idea because all these kids are getting into great schools, but then they're all burning out, right? And you and I are seeing all these kids coming into the clinic or to your office who are distraught on Prozac oh. and all these drugs, right? Oh, so yeah, well, there's this whole anxiety epidemic um, that every every kid I see now is I, I have anxiety. I having every I, it's everywhere. I have anxiety. I have anxiety, and I go, well, tell me more about your anxiety. And well, it's this, it's that, and I go. So so what I'm doing now is I'm trying to put a dent in the anxiety epidemic. I go. How about that we quit using the word anxiety to describe everything? Right. Um, how about let's get more nuanced about what you're experiencing emotionally? How about that you are nervous about something that you've never done before and that it will come and it will go? And that's not anxiety. That's natural, normal nervousness. Butterflies. And then what about that? I feel unsettled about A or so I try and give them like a wider vo vocabulary to describe what falls under their word of anxiety. So I call it the eight pack of Crayolas. They're working with one color called anxiety and they need about an eight pack to describe it. And then most of it is normalized and then they can go, well, maybe I'm not anxious. I go, maybe you're not. How about that? Um, but but this 
I'm, I, I'm in, I have anxiety. I have social anxiety. I have this anxiety. It's some of that's driven by social media. Um, and, and I get that kids are more anxious because of the things I talked about earlier. Like they grew up, I mean, like kids have grown up in a night post 9-11 world, school shootings, wars, um, economic downturns, all kinds of traumatic things going on in their world. So COVID. It, it's skewed. I mean, they're, it's skewed toward fear. Um, but I don't know that our response has to be that everybody gets so anxious about it. So, th so I don't like this. I'm anxious epidemic that's going on in this, uh, especially this generation that we're, well, probably the millennials, the Gen Z's, you know, it's just contagious. <laughs> it's kind of well, like <laughs> and I think to your point, I think that the generational teaching has changed. Like, I don't think my parents were interested in ascribing to anxiety so much as you're fine. Get over it. You'll be okay. I love you, but get over it. Now it's like, Oh honey. Yeah. I know you're having a bad day. Okay. You're anxious. Go sit in your room for a while. And you know, there, there's just a different way. It's almost like we've medicalized normal life, right? Like, or, you know, there are obstacles. Pathologized right? it. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. it, it's a bit, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mess because, you know, we see so many of these kids wanting, they come in, they ask for Prozac and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa time out. What do, you, what do you need? What do you need Prozac for? Let's, let's digest the reason for your dysfunction. And, and a lot of the time it's a parent child dyad problem. Right. 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 So you look, you have to look systemically at what is creating, um, so, so your anxiety. So I, so I have this, um, I'll tell a story. I saw this incredibly um, exceptional young woman when she was about 10 or 11. And she was in a private school and she was just uber smart, uber social. She, I don't even remember why I was seeing her. Um, oh, her parents were getting divorced. Um, and so they wanted her to be seen while they were going through all that. So fast forward, and she's a sophomore in high school, first year in high school. She has social anxiety up the wazoo. And I'm going, you socially anxious? That's not how I know you. I know you. And you're not a socially anxious person. So, so then I do a little more digging. I kind of have an intuition that there's something more going on here and I'm not an MD, but boy, um, come to find out she probably has a thyroid problem. <laughs> and I had to call the parents and go, will you please get her medically checked out? Because there are five different things that lead me to believe that this is not social anxiety. It's a medical issue. And yeah. sure enough, <laughs> I, I, my intuition was right. And, um, she doesn't have social anxiety, but boy, oh boy, on the top of it, if you just looked at it, it looked like that. So again, it, it, you know, part of what's missing, I think is good diagnosis. Yeah. Um, you know, nuanced, really looking at the subtleties of what's happening with that teenager and also what is happening systemically, you know, like, like your example of the person who brought the mom in and said that the other person was not a safe adult. Well, 
just look at what can be done at a behavioral level rather than a medication level or what can be done at a a thought level. How can you change your thinking about what you're experiencing and develop skills and strategies? So there's, there's way too much of a quickness to medicate like you just described as opposed to let's slow down and look at this more carefully figure out what it is and then let's come up with a plan and develop strategies and skills and tools to deal with this because once you develop that toolkit which is what I did with so many of these kids that you develop a toolkit that lasts a lifetime you aren't going to have to deal with anxiety and once you have your toolkit um, built you're going to be fine so right. yeah yeah so let's talk about the the big elephant in the room in the last i guess it's been 12 years now since the development of the phone teenagers clearly are probably at the highest risk for dysfunction based on exposure to social media and just screen time in general i mean younger kids have it as well but it's just the teen it seems like the teenagers just bombarded with this reality what would you tell parents regarding when to allow them to have the phone based on age. And again, I don't know, I don't think there's a hard, fast rule on this, but what's the Pam Staples rule? And then our timing, when to let them have social media like Snapchat, because I think this is an existential struggle for every parent. Um, and there, there is a disparate reality in what everyone's deciding to do. And I think, again, it's a race to the bottom because I think when one kid gets it into you know, fifth grade. Oh yeah. Parents are like, Oh, well he got it. Well, maybe it's like, no, it's not okay. Right. So what do you say to that? Well, again, um, I think the later, the better. I know that phones can be used for younger kids as, you know, like something urgent comes up and they need to contact their parents, but then they should have those little kid phones that just have three functions on them and forget about giving them a real big, you know, smartphone. Um, but I think if kids, well, first of all, I think parents should raise the bar and do give kids phones later than they're getting them so young now. It's crazy. Um, and, and that it, it serves no good purpose. They, I mean, I think everything can go wrong by giving a kid a phone. I, there's not much positive to it in my opinion so um so i think that you have if if you're going to give a kid a phone at a young age you have to put all the parental controls on it you have to take it away at a certain time let them have it for only a certain amount of time per day and 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 take it away at night so many kids i've worked with bring their phones into their bedrooms and they're on them all night long oh i'm tired I, I'm so tired today. I go, why? Oh, well, I, you know, I said, oh, did you stay up on your phone until four o'clock in the morning and get three hours of sleep? And of course, they'll tell you, they'll tell me, yeah, that's it. I go, yeah, I kind of figured that. So, um, so yeah, the, the phones have to be taken away, not, not put in their bedroom at night, you know, so there has to be all these boundaries, limits set on phones and then monitoring social media. So I think parents need to have passwords to every social media account and they need to look for the hidden ones. Like there's hidden Instagram accounts. Do you know about that? Mm-hmm. Finsta? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think parents have to really watch for the social media stuff. I just encouraged a parent of a 14 year old boy to start watching his social media. Um, he Snapchatted somebody a picture of his legs hanging out a windowsill with the word suicide written across it. Oh my God. Well, the only reason she found out about it is because a extended family member ended up seeing it, I guess, and circled back to her. And I go, excuse me, but you weren't monitoring a 14 year old boy's social media until now. I said, get on this. Well, ever since she started monitoring that, guess what's happened? She's been having these incredibly wonderful dialogues with her 14 year old son about how lonely he is, how hard it is to make friends, how he just got bullied by some girls over social media. So this monitoring social media has opened up a whole new world in this relationship between this mother and this son, which I think can lead to really good stuff. Let's let's dive deeper here, Pam, because I think that's really important because some people would say that's hovercrafting, right? But what we're talking about is passive awareness that leads to connection in discussion about something that the kid otherwise is not getting any counsel on, right? So we're not micromanaging at all. So speak to that. Oh, the, the, t- no, no, no. Monitoring social media to me is not hovercraft at all. It's your kid has access to a portal to all kinds of things that could be destructive and harmful to your child. So this is about protection of a child, a teenager. And, and, and along the way, you can teach your kids protective um, skills and tools as they navigate social media. But in the beginning, of, well, until I, I think it just has to be monitored because it's, it's a big uh, world out there in the cyber, in cyberspace. And you, you don't know where your kids are going. It's like giving them a car and saying, just drive. We don't, we don't care where you go. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Well, the, you the, would never do that. Right. Yeah. So, and the, the access to pornography is the thing that probably scares me oh. the most with these young kids. I remember when I was, shoo, how old was I? 13, 12. Uh, we used to ride our bicycles to the Burger King. It was like a three mile bike ride on a little tiny oh, yeah. BMX bike. So by the time I ate the burger and the fries and got home, I was starving. But those were the seventies again. Right. And uh, so I remember one time we were at this place, we used to go do jumps and in the woods, we were sitting there and somebody went to the bathroom in the woods. And Oh, by the way, they found a, a bag of magazines. I think it was hustler and playboy or something. Sure that was that. the closest you could get as a teenager in those days to getting contraband pornography right yep. now it's it's a simple click i remember my son he was he wasn't very old and i remember he was stressed out of his mind when this happened to him but he searched up trashies and on the internet and trashies were these little figurines that were in trash cans and these little cute toys that kids could get and he was looking up trashies to find a new one and oh by the way he had stumbled upon a site that was porn based and it immediately sent him something that said, um, if you don't pay this, you're going to be turned into the police or something. So he freaks out, doesn't do anything, shuts the phone down. And then eventually we realize he's stressed out of his mind after about a day. 
and he tells us what happened. And then he's like, how did you not know? He's so mad at us for not knowing that he was stressed out. And then when push came to shove, you know, we were like, buddy, we got you. Let's go look at what happened. And we told him it was no big deal. It was all this. And this is something that happens. But to your point, the access points are insane. Oh, it's so insane. And, and uh, you know, just even, um, yeah, the, the potential for just all the addiction stuff yeah. that can happen. So, you know, porn addiction. Um, Sexual desensitization. And, yeah. Uh, objectifying women. I mean, just, yeah. Awful. It's just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, boy, how are boys supposed to learn effective sexual intimacy through pornography? It's, it's an abject 180 degree turn in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's they're yeah, they're opposites. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm hearing you saying clearly for the audience to hear, you know, later is better. And 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 later for me, I mean, I really with my wife, we pushed very hard so our kids didn't get access to phones until late uh, middle school, just because I just saw no avenue. And then Snapchat basically gets so mad at us. I think it was 10th grade when we allowed my daughter and son to get snapchat and their other friends were on there forever and the problem was for them which is a real problem that's how all their friends communicated they're not texting they're snapping and so that was a real big troublemaker for us but we also were like ooh, so yeah tricky 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 reality well that's why i'm in favor of randomly monitoring social media not constantly um but but if you're being it's kind of like a random drug check right if you know you're going to get checked, you're going to behave differently. Right. And so to me, random monitoring creates a behavior change in how somebody uses social media. So that's why I'm in favor of it. Cause I think yeah. people be more responsible about it if they're being monitored, um, unmonitored kids. Oh my God. Who knows where that will lead? Yeah. Nowhere good. Nowhere good. Yeah. No, I think about, I think about the, the reality, the unmonitored kid, when you have three 16-year-olds who go out at night, one has a curfew at 11, one has a curfew at 10, and the one, other one has no curfew. And the mm-hmm. other two are looking at the one with no curfew going, you're so lucky, this is the best thing ever. And then they're in by 11, and the other guy's staying out going, wow, this sucks, my parents don't love me, right? Yeah. And the three of them don't realize that the, the young man, so the there is beauty and boundaries too because it's a sign of it's a sign of parental love right 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 that that's what i mean about that perimeter that 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 it gets bigger with each year of age um but there's still a perimeter um and letting kids experiment um with what they're experimenting with while they're under your watch is so much better than trying to control them not experimenting and then getting to college and doing their experimenting there. So that's been another message of mine to parents is, um, Hey, guess what? Teenagers are going to probably experiment with alcohol. They're probably going to experiment with pot. They're going to experiment with sex. They're going to experiment with this stuff. It's them trying to figure out who they are in that world. And if they do it under your watch with your guidance, they're going to do better long-term than if you say, absolutely not. We're going to put the hammer down on this. We're going to control this to death, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't work. So I talk parents, or I 
strongly recommend, let's say, <laughs> that they have guidelines um, about what they're going to do with their kids um, when they get caught drinking, when they get caught um, smoking weed, what whatever it is they get caught with. So then I try and help the parents figure out how to create guidelines and consequences for that that are realistic to the world. All right. Let, this is perfect. And I didn't even tell you this is the way we're going to go. This is like karma. I love this. I love it. Okay. Consequences versus punishments, right? So I was raised in a punishment first reality as a child. Oh, yeah. You do something oh. wrong, you pay penance, right? That was the way of the day, yeah. Yeah. And so the reality that makes more sense is this 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 thought process around consequences, right? So I think about you're drunk driving and you're caught. A consequence versus a punishment. A punishment, you're grounded for a week, you don't get to touch the car, blah, blah, blah. A consequence is maybe part of that is you don't get the car, but let's go to the hospital and see a drunk driver who's either injured or the kid that they injured. Mm -hmm. So speak to that part. Speak to your thought process around consequences, ideas for parents on what a consequence looks like for any situation you think we can talk about. Well, there are natural consequences where a kid would end up with a minor, uh, you know, on their record and um, their school may or may not find out about it or it might go on a record where it shows up in their college applications. So there are those natural consequences that they, that kids should know about, by the way, do you know that if you get caught drinking and you get a minor, this is what happens. So right. you want to tell them what their natural consequences are. And then I think there can be um, consequences that parents impose that aren't necessarily punishment. Um so, so like, for example, my approach to a kid uh, getting caught drinking would be, I, I did a first offense, second offense, third offense. And the first offense was, um, talk to us about it. How did this happen? Why did it happen? And what did you learn from it? So it's a discussion. If it happens a second time, then the assumption is, you didn't learn very much from the first time, did you? So now we have to kind of amp this up. So now we're gonna discuss, what do you think the fair consequence to this is? And it would be, mostly it would be, you don't get access, you don't get the privilege of using the car for two weeks or a week or whatever. Something just to send the message of, you screwed up, you didn't learn from your first experience, and now there's going to be a consequence because in real life, there would be a consequence as an adult. Um, and then the third consequence or the third offense is really, you're not learning from time one or two. So now we have to figure out, do you have a problem with this? So then this is when I ask the parents to take their kids in for um, a chemical dependency assessment and find out what is really going on here. And um, so, so we have it all lined up. It's a contract and the kids know what a first, a second and a third offense leads to. And so do the parents. So everybody's prepared. Everybody knows what to expect. So that was kind of my uh, pretty typical protocol for parents dealing with kids who um, get caught drinking. It worked, it people liked it. Yeah, and it also takes away the lawyering and the bargaining, 
because you've contracted pre-injury. So you have something to fall back on. Say, hey, you already we've already talked about this, decided this. There's no option for negotiation in this situation because this is what you agreed to, right? So right. Yeah. yeah. Now now you make the choice between doing what you do and having a consequence or you figure it out. So so it's a learning approach, a teaching approach of we're trying to teach you how to be responsible about if you're going to experiment with this, we want you to do it safely and um, and not um, outside the lines. So, yeah. and then there's always the call for help. The call for help um, is a, a freebie by the parents in that situation too. If, if you're in a situation that you've been drinking, we don't want you to get in a vehicle with it. Somebody who's been drinking, we don't want you to drive when you've been drinking. So you get a free pass of us coming to get you. Um, yeah. So there's that in there too. So, right. right. Yeah. Non judgmental. We're here. Safety's first. Right. We'll, yep. we'll deal with the rest of it later. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Full All shift right. gears now. We're going to go okay. in a completely different direction. Okay. So, one of the greatest risks for a child's health outside of abject abuse or something is a situation where the family unit's very dysfunctional. Mom and dad don't get along. And I think to your earlier point, the over scheduling of a child where the parents are split, not together, driving all over Hell's Half Acre to this, that, and the other. And their parents, therefore, are not connecting on a repeated basis. There is a rift that begins and the parents don't have a connection in relationship. So the kids are now watching a world that is dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. How do you, because I think that's the whole leading by example reality, right? So if parents are leading by example, the kids are learning effective emotional connection, watching parents do that with each other. How and when do you interject that in a relationship discussion when you're dealing with teenagers? Is that part of it, i.e. asking the teenagers, are you watching parents? And is that part of why you're stressed out, right? And mm -hmm. then the second part of the question is how do we as parents not bring our emotional baggage between each other to the table with the child? Well, um, let me start with uh, how parents shouldn't bring their emotional baggage to their children. Um, so in a family where parents are together, um, they parents need to have their conflicts or their or disagreements or their whatever um mostly out of earshot of their kids because kids are loyal and they want to take sides and they want to be fair and so you don't want kids to either ref a parental fight or to, to take the side of one parent against another parent. So I think that keeping it out of earshot and also for the parents to work on how to reduce the level of conflict that they have is, is an important part of that too. 
Um, but I think it's part of protecting children from having to be involved in that some of that dysfunctional stuff. Parents right. are going to fight. Some of it's natural. Some of it they should see. Um, as long as they see parents kind of kiss and make up. Right, that's, recovery. That's good mm -hmm. role modeling. Yeah, repair. Um, for kids in families where the parents are part um, and one parent, I don't know if this was part of your question or not. Am I, am okay. I, okay. Um, but where, when parents are divorced and apart um, and it's great when parents are cooperative and on the same page and they're taking care of their kids pretty equally but when that equation gets lopsided and there's an absent parent and then a parent who has to kind of overfunction for the parent who's absent, that really, that is a situation where I think is it really takes a toll on a child because the child feels abandoned by the absent parent. And then they feel like they have to take care sometimes of the um, single parent, so to speak, um, so, we, so there's a lot of stuff that can happen in that situation. And so one of the things that I do with kids is I teach them assertiveness skills. I teach them how to talk to their parents and ask for what they need and what they want. And so like if a parent is asking a child to be the messenger to the other parent because they don't speak, I have, I help the teenager child um, find a way to say, you know what, mom, I don't feel comfortable doing that for you with dad. Would you please find a different way to do that from now on? Because I'm not going to do it anymore. And so I teach them how to set limits with their parents who may not have good boundaries. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. But I don't, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure I answered that other question that you had. Well, it's it, it's actually okay because it segued right into sort of the empowerment of the child to deal with their feelings and emotions in a in a in an effective way. I know, yeah. you know, when I see so many children who are in divorced families, I mean, it's so it's so common now. It may, it may be even more common now than the together family, and they often do get put in this role where the parents in effect are trying to gain favor with the child against the other mm. parent, maybe not even consciously. Right. And so that's, I think, an empowerment statement for the child to say, no matter what that parent is doing, I'm going to stay neutral and love them both, which is sort of a reverse reality of what it should be. The parent should be the ones offering them. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it, it it's complicated. It's the 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 divorced family picture has many different variations on the theme, but I think it's um, most important to try and advocate as much as you can for those kids with the parent if they can't do it themselves. So as a as a therapist and as someone who's actually a family therapist, I have great comfort level in speaking to parents about what they need to do differently. And I call it, you know, they're either part of the um, the therapy with the, with the adolescent or I bring them in at the end and talk to them and I give the adolescent a chance to speak their truth 
um, all of that. So it is it is about either advocating for them or empowering them so they can advocate for themselves. That's a really right. important thing. And then if they can't and they're not at that stage yet, I think of words I've heard you say before where you want to hear the feelings or the energy in between the words and the anger, right? If a child's temper tantruming at any age or the teenager is really exploding, don't listen to those words. Look for the what's behind it, what's underneath it. Yep. Talk about that a little bit. Um, well, um, there again, I, I always say that kids are a work in progress. So I just had this mom email me because her son blew up at her and called her some really ugly names. And she says, I feel like I failed him. And I go, you have not failed him. He's a work in progress. He had a blow up. And now is the time to, when he calms down, to talk to him about A, B, and C. And so coaching a parent can have such a great effect on the relationship with their um, teenager. It's just, it's really is powerful. Um, but to, so, so she was, she, so this mom is not afraid to start these dialogues with her, her son. And she does succeed at getting him to be able to talk about what lies beneath. Um, well, I blew up because I was really upset by, and then you'll find out it's a peer group issue or somebody mistreated him somewhere and he's just reacting to that. Um, but he's taking it out on her because she's a safe person to do that with, even though it's ugly and he right. should, he needs to learn how not to do that, but he's a work in progress. So he will learn eventually if she keeps teaching him. Yeah. And I think, I think the work in progress goes both ways, right? So we're, oh yeah, as, par as parents, we're birthing children with little to no education on parenting, other than that which we were shown as children ourselves. So we right. generally mimic that which we saw earlier, which may or may not be healthy, right? Um, and then we make our mistakes along the way because we don't, unless we are reading a lot, learning a lot, getting our own therapy and coaching, we're going to make a ton of mistakes. So I think that, that, that thought process cuts both ways. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think the most important thing a parent can do right out of the gate is get therapy. I mean, I, I mean, it's sort of like I said this to Jeremy Goldberg a couple hours ago was like, you know, we teach people to play soccer and they don't just go out there with the ball. I mean, they do to some extent, but we give a coach to help you kick the ball appropriately. Now you don't need the coach all the time. A lot of that play is on your own, but you do need a coach to show you foot position and all this. So why do we think it's okay to have children without any coaching on parenting? I, I find that to be such an irrational societal ideology. I uh, Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it is, it is a lot of trial and error. Uh, and, and the thing is, Almost, almost all of these kids turn out to be just fine, right. and um, and and parents turn out to be fine too, and and there's there can be this kind of acceptance of that was then and this is what we did, and it, it, there's an adaptability that happens that I think um, creates cushion and forgiveness 
across time. So, um, because there's no such thing as a perfect parent. It's just, it is going to be trial and error. But I do think that people could benefit from getting help when they need it, or, you know, just reading a good parenting book, or going to a parent support group, or now there's all these kind of things that you can get online, even these online um, helpers are helping people with parenting. So yeah, sign up. Why not why not go for it and be better right from the get-go? Yeah, I think of that. I think it brings us full circle right back to the beginning of the conversation. The two things you can give your kids that will help no matter what is unconditional love and boundaries. I mean, these are relatively simple pieces of the of the architecture of how they're going to look forward in the future. But exactly. while, while you brought that up, what are some of your favorite parenting books? Like, what would you recommend a parent pick up as a book to read. Now, I know your work with Terry Real. I would obviously say for the parent side, read the Terry Real work around how the parents can be connected together. But what else? You know, it's um, it's, it's funny because I don't really recommend that many parenting books. So I don't have any. I don't have any off the top of my head. A, a, an oldie, but a good a goodie for me was how to raise a self reliant kid. I used yeah. to. I used to recommend that one all the time um but i don't i don't i don't have any off the top of my head i'm sorry no worries no worries i'll let's segue let's segue right into the pam staples top 10 parenting must do's for teens oh any version of any version of top 10 top five top one i know you've got probably top 100 but well i I, I, I do have i do have some things prepared very good run them here we go um and there, and there are no specific order um and some of these things we've already discussed but we'll put them in a top 10 hey, repeating um, them sinks them in the head better change up your parenting role to become a teenager's teacher mentor and guide and give up the hovercraft or the helicopter i like that um, don't rescue them from the natural consequences and let them experience failure. Too many of these kids don't know what failure is um, until their 20s, and then they're just devastated by it. And it's like, come on. Yeah. Failure is part of the human experience. Um, expand their perimeter with each year of age so that they can experiment with what's in front of them. Um, number four, Nurture their innate capacity for empathy. That's something we didn't talk about, but empathy is to me the superpower that makes our world go round in a good way. And there's not enough of it out there right now. So empathic kids do better all across the board. Um, Create an emotionally safe space for them to confide in you as they need it because they need so it's not hovercraft. It's, hey, I'm here. And I, if you confide in me, I will do whatever I can to help you when you need it. So um, prepare them well to leave home and build their own independent life. A launching pad. They need a launching pad. And it needs to start getting built from the time they're born. Um uh, don't overprotect them. Teach them skills to protect themselves because that's what they're going to need. And then my number eight, there's an innate intelligence 
that guides all human development. Trust it all along the way. Resist the urge to control it. Trust it. And then to, to number nine, trust yourself as a parent. There's an innate intelligence in this process too, if you pay attention to it. People do have software in them to be parents. Um, and then the other thing that we didn't talk about so much is a peer group. And I go, I, so number 10 is teens need their peer group because they start leaving their first family for their second family in adolescence. And that's as much a part of building their launch pad as the family. So right. second family is really important. Right. And that, yeah. and that could be, an you could, we could actually do an entire another hour on empathy and the separation of child from mother and father, but primarily more mother, yeah. um, especially the firstborn, as you, they yeah. leave the house, we train them to be wonderfully independent creatures. And then we mourn every moment of that wonderful independent creature. It's such a, it's, it's, it's such an incredibly juxtaposed reality of what we want versus what we want. Just got busy sending my son off to college for his first semester and so proud, so happy. Let him go fly like a bird. I, I, I was telling yeah. a bunch of people when I was sort of suffering that first week that he was gone. Yeah. I, people were like, well, how's it going? I said, well, I just drove my truck up to the school with a caged animal in the back. I opened it and he ran out to the Serengeti and he's not looking back. And it was really hard, but I was so thrilled for him. Yeah. that he's now in a new happy, you know, safari that he's in, right? And and exactly. it was the visual, you know, reality of my existence at that moment. And then as the weeks went on, of course, it gets better and better. And you're talking to him on the phone and they're like, oh, dad, I'm having the time of my life. And you can't do anything but just beam with happiness, knowing that as the, the statistics show, the amount of time you will spend together with that child is diminished to like one millionth of 1% of the entire existence you've had so far. Boy, that's a hard reality, but it's what we want know, them to but, have. But this, is, this is where I'd, ra I'd rather see parents celebrate yes. the, the launching of their kids rather than mourning it. Yep. Um, but this mourning thing that I'm seeing, it's like, really? Um, like yeah. I know I have a mom, she's her daughter's a junior and she's starting to mourn the loss of having her in her life. And she's got two more years, well, a year and a half. It's like, come on, get yeah. her ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and and, but this is what's happening, right? And oh. I, and again, I don't know if my mother mourned me running away. I don't know, but you know, oh. it, it's it, it's sort of fascinating to watch the beauty of that juxtaposed reality. It's just yep. just pride yep. and pride and sadness all wrapped up into one beautiful kid that you send yep. off. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it 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 is a all of this stuff. Raising teenagers is hard. But so, so, so incredibly rewarding. Oh, that too. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and kids are taking longer to grow up. There's no doubt about that. Because yeah. they're going to live to be about 100 or 120. So you know, I go, what's the hurry? Um, so they're taking their time. So so another thing I like about, the, especially the 20s, is they're calling it adult adolescence. Oh, really? Yeah. There's, there's somebody out there giving it that term. I love the term because... 20s are, are really part adolescent still and then yeah. part adulthood and their yeah, brains yeah. come online around 25. Thank God kids, kids, they aren't getting married until they're about 26 and a half. Yeah. So 
on average. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that goes into the thirties, forties, and fifties. <laughs> Who knows? Ah, <laughs> uh, too funny, Pam. Too funny. I absolutely love this conversation. We're going to have too. to do another one on on Me empathy too. and and release. Uh, there's just so much more we could talk about. It's just this yeah. is and the yes. happy, free flowing conversations of our lives. So yes, so grateful for you. Love everything you do. Love you. And I'm just just what a fun hour. Yep. Feelings are mutual, Chris. Feelings are mutual. Um, thanks for having me on. This was great fun. Enjoyed every minute of it. Hey, go, go get a, go, 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 go give a long list, the long distance love bomb out there somewhere and go do a snow angel in the snow for me as I'm jealous that you have all that snow up there. Oh, it's perfect snow angel. In fact, Maggie May, my dog does puppy angels in the snow. Oh, I'll give her a hug for me. I miss her. Will do. (laughs) All right, Pam, take care. You too, Chris. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. A fabulous conversation with a fabulous person doing great things for teenagers throughout her career. You know, it's always interesting to me, those that dedicate their lives to the betterment of others and how they take their own abilities and morph them with current knowledge of the time, changing over the years to do best practices no matter what. And Pam is one of those people. I really enjoyed this conversation with her because I think it's all news to use and practical information for parents. And this is the kind of information that will allow us to be better parents, which then allows children to be more grounded and more healthy. I mean, what else do we want in life than to have our offspring turn out to be functional, solvent adults? And for me, that's the most important part of raising children. There's a lot to be said. I went through medical school and really did not have a lot of training in this space. Psychology and psychiatry were more around understanding disease states instead of really understanding the upstream risks of adverse childhood events or how to be a great parent, frankly. So I'm going to try and explore this space more over time. But today was a great day with Dr. Pam Staples, and I hope you all enjoyed it. And as always, don't forget, hug those kids. Now for the obligatory disclaimer. If you like this podcast, please rate it on Apple iTunes and let me know that you liked it. If you didn't like it, same thing, rate it. Let's me know you don't like it. Either way, please do your best uh, every day, no matter what. And thank you for listening. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and absolutely does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.